Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. So welcome back to A Long Time in Finance. This week we are taking another look at inflation and what the Ukraine invasion means for household incomes. The immediate impact has been a huge upward lurch in energy prices. A year ago, the average dual fuel bill for a household was about £1,000. Cap's now 2000 If you want to fix your price for a year, it will cost you £4,000. And if current wholesale prices stay where they are, your annual cost could end up being £6,000, which is a pretty incredible increase, isn't it? It certainly is. That would start next autumn. I think it's fair to say it's miles beyond the capability of a very large chunk of the population to pay. And and that's before all the other increases which could be on the way in terms of motoring, petrol costs going up, and food. We've already seen this week, I think it's Greg's or one one of the bakery groups announcing that they're putting up their prices almost by the hour at the moment. And the fundamental outcome of all that is a huge squeeze in household incomes. And at the same time, the war and the sanctions, you know, must be threatening growth a bit. I mean, we're still in a post-COVID bounce, but high gas prices may force energy intensive industries to shut rather than produce at a loss. Now, the government's talking about Britain needing to make sacrifices to stop President Putin. But how big are those sacrifices and who should bear them? So we're joined by Gerard Lyons, who's the chief economic strategist at the fund manager Net Wealth and a former economic advisor to Boris Johnson when he was mayor of London. His Wikipedia entry says that he has a reputation for being one of the most accurate business forecasters, having predicted a deep imminent recession ahead of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and also predicting the Lawson boom in the 1980s with Ed Bus. So who better then to pick over the sheep's entrails of Covid, the Ukraine invasion, gas shortages and all the other shocks we seem to be experiencing? Welcome, Gerard. Well, it's great to be here and thank you for inviting me on. Great to have you. So what is your prognosis on the outlook for inflation now after the Ukraine invasion and all the latest stuff that's rolling across? Well, even before the war in Ukraine, there was a danger that inflation was likely to prove more of a problem than central bankers globally, including the Bank of England here in the UK, were realising. The best way to think about inflation, I felt, over the last year was to ask which P was it? Would inflation pass through? Would it persist or would the pickup in inflation become permanent? So pass through, persist, or permanent. Now, over the last year, the central banks, including the Bank of England, tended to think that inflation would not be permanent and that they thought it would pass through very quickly. I think they were wrong on the latter. It's quite clear, even the head of Ukraine, that inflationary pressures were likely to persist. And I think that the war in Ukraine does suggest that inflation is not only going to hit a higher level than we previously feared, but will persist for longer. So Ukraine has had many impacts. So it's not just Ukraine, but the war in Ukraine and problems in Russia and consequently the sanctions. It will hit global growth, it will add to inflation, and it will compound the problem for policymakers. In terms of growth, for instance, it's almost the three S's. Last year, global growth was strong. This year, it looks set to be solid. Next year, it was going to slow down. And the war in Ukraine is reinforcing that slowdown. So you have um, two groups of three 
possibilities. But you are, I suspect, tending more towards the pessimistic outcome. And certainly, if you look at what is happening in the commodity markets, that would reinforce that. It's not just energy, but everything else is looking very bleak, especially in softs where the wheat price, indeed all the food raw material prices have gone up a long way. And I don't suppose that the farmers in Ukraine this year will be spending much time sowing next year's crop. Well, that's correct. I think it's important when we look at the impact of this war to put in perspective the fact that Russia is no longer an economic superpower. It is the 11th biggest economy, or before the crisis, it was the 11th biggest economy in the world. But Russia is a huge energy exporter. It's the second biggest producer of oil. So in terms of oil exports, it's third after the UAE and Saudi Arabia. So all exports from Russia will be impacted. Any shortfall through sanctions or through other reasons will be unlikely to be made up by other countries. And in terms of gas, as we know, Russia accounts for about 45% of EU gas consumption. So the indirect effect is through higher energy prices. And of course, adding in Ukraine plus Russia, the decimation of any food harvest and output plus the sanctions means there's a food price increase. Now, inflationary pressures were already evident before the war, partly because of the strong rebound we saw in the world economy over the last year, and also partly because of the incredibly lax monetary policies we've seen for some time, but particularly last year and notably here in the UK. I should say, Neil, it's important, though, to differentiate across countries, even though this is a global problem. What we're seeing is that different countries have an ability to respond in different ways. For instance, this last week, America has shown its willingness to relax fiscal policy. Over the last week, also in China, their two sessions political event, it's quite clear from Premier Li that China is not only relaxing uh, fiscal policy, but has the ability to relax monetary policy. Now, given America is the world's biggest economy, China number two, that's important. The challenge here in the UK is the limited room for policy manoeuvre, or more particularly the unwillingness of the Chancellor to deviate from his tax increasing policies And then that raises questions as to what the Bank of England will do and indeed what the Bank of England should do. Are you suggesting then that he should deviate from his current policies? Because he's got a statement next week, isn't it? Yeah. Which some people are saying might signal a change of tack and uh, a further easing or further breaks to tackle the inflation figures on fuel and elsewhere. Yeah, there's a whole combination of issues here. But in terms of the imminent cost of living squeeze, and you touched on it in previous podcasts of yours about people's ability to pay, never mind their willingness to pay. But in terms of this cost of living squeeze, it has a number of components to it. It has the higher energy prices, it has the tax increases, and it also has maybe the monetary policy tightening that's coming through. It sounds like a great combination to bring in the spring. Well, I don't think the tax increases should have been implemented in the first place. Back last autumn, the budget deficit for the fiscal year up to then was already coming in far lower, hence far better than the independent official forecast that the OBR had anticipated. So it was by no means clear cut in my view 
that the Chancellor needed to have announced tax increases. Obviously, the external environment has subsequently changed, and he's made a judgment call, as he's entitled to, to raise taxes then. Uh, But I think the external environment has changed sufficiently for there to be a political as well as an economic justification, I would argue, to reverse the tax increases. But it's by no means clear-cut that that's the route the Chancellor is willing to go down. It has to be said, though, even if he did decide to postpone or not go ahead with the tax increases, that would only alleviate slightly some of the hits that people are about to receive. That's that's interesting, because you talked a bit about the stagflation threat. The question would be, if you were in, in Rishi Sunak's shoes, what would you be looking to do to alleviate the, those cost pressures on households and also to protect economic growth? The question is whether there's any quick wins and also the longer term strategy. In terms of the immediate issue, I think it's to provide help to those who need it most through further fiscal measures. At the same time, one could say that the tax increases should be postponed or at least reversed. Do you think it's um, still time to do that, considering the fact that we're only a month away from the new financial year? Yeah, no, I don't think that will happen. I don't think that will happen. I think we're going to see the tax increases proceed. Fiscal policy has to be the measure that's used. If we put it this way, over the last decades, we've had unconventional monetary policy, both in Britain and globally. This has created all sorts of problems. And the unconventional monetary policy should have halted many years ago. But now I think we are now likely to see more unconventional fiscal policy. Already global public debt levels are at an all-time high. And as we saw during the COVID crisis, fiscal policy was the policy tool that was used. And I think in terms of people's hit this time around, not just in Britain, we're seeing it on the continent as well in terms of the EU, fiscal policy is likely to be the policy tool that's used. So we're seeing more unconventional fiscal policy, but that's what the Chancellor needs to try and focus his attention on. But when you talk about fiscal policy, what do you mean? Do you mean subsidies for those who basically can't afford to pay their bills? Are you talking about energy subsidies? Are you talking about universal credit being tweaked around? Universal credit, we've had some big changes to recently, so it's more likely to be subsidies or direct measures to help people. Generally speaking, the Americans have done quite well in recent years by directly getting money into people. I think the Chancellor did very well during the pandemic by focusing his assistance on those who appeared most at need. So in terms of this, clearly he doesn't have a bottomless pit of taxpayers' money he can use. So it would be targeted measures. But in any way, shape or form, there's no doubt there's going to be a severe squeeze. I agree with that. And I just wanted uh, at this stage to broaden it out a bit and say, what sort of appetite do you think people have to absorb this pain, this financial pain, in the light of what is happening in Ukraine? Is there any sort of feeling of blitz spirit or they are suffering hugely, it's not unreasonable for us to suffer somewhat? Or do you think that doesn't enter into people's minds? Well, I do think it enters into some people's minds. It'd be difficult for me to add value relative to any other listener in terms of whether that impacts all people's way of thinking. But certainly people are very aware of the problem in Ukraine and seem quite prepared to help. 
Sanctions tend not to be effective in repelling a military aggressor. I'm not going into the military sphere here, but we just know historically that sanctions tend not to always achieve the objective that politicians may have in mind. But what we're seeing here is an economic cost. And if one looks at any economy, including the UK economy, and not just now, confidence is always an important feature of how an economy plays out and how people and indeed companies behave. Indeed, the outlook for any economy depends on the interaction between the fundamentals, policy and confidence. And that's relevant for this particular cost of living debate. The fundamentals suggest that it will be a hit across the spectrum, but different people have a bigger hit than others. Policy therefore plays a response, as we've touched on, and confidence too. In terms of the fundamentals, for instance, a couple of weeks ago, the Bank of England were giving testimony to the Treasury Select Committee. And in that testimony, it was pointed out, for instance, that the lower income decile, so the bottom 10%, spent twice as much of their disposable income on energy-related items than the higher income categories. So that group already with a high marginal propensity to consume very little, if any, savings will be hit very hard. So if you were advising the Prime Minister now, would you say that he should try and be as upbeat as possible to sustain confidence? Or should he be bracing people for a very unpleasant hit over the next few months? Look, people aren't stupid. They know that not everything is under the Prime Minister or Chancellor's control. But I think it's important to be realistic. And what I think we lack in the UK, and indeed one could argue in many other Western economies, is there's a lack of economic vision. So an earlier question was, what should the Chancellor do? It's not just about addressing the problem immediately in front of us. It's also about outlining clearly a longer-term economic vision that people can buy into. And that vision, I would argue, needs to have three arrows attached to it. Or, and we need to hit a bullseye almost on each. <laughs> you like groups of three, yeah. don't groups you? Groups of three, that's right. I, I can use a few more. But, three bullseyes. Um, Three bullseyes, that's right. That's a likely outcome. <laughs> Go on. I was going to say 180, but let's yeah, hope inflation yeah. doesn't get to that Triple number. T- yeah, <laughs> Triple right. 20s. Take a bit of time to get there, I think. Yeah. We do need a longer-term economic vision, monetary policy and financial stability, and I think that's been wholly inadequate recently. We need to have a credible fiscal policy, and then we have to have a supply-side agenda. So in answer to your question, Neil, Clearly, it's about not only putting things in context, but at the same time, people's ability to endure a near-term problem may also be influenced by whether they see light at the end of the tunnel. And therefore, it's important to have that longer-term economic vision. I think it comes back to an earlier question about taxation. Fundamental, 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 I'll say it three times, problem in the UK, (laughs) is that the Treasury is just too obsessed with the budget deficit. Reducing the budget deficit should not always supersede other economic policy imperatives. We need to recognize that the best way to reduce the deficit now and the level of debt being reduced gradually is by actually focusing on not raising taxes, but on actually having a clear policy objective to boost and increase the trend rate of growth. And higher taxes, in my mind, not only don't help people in the cost of living crisis, they don't help the longer-term growth outlook either. 
But they all pay lip service to this. But actually, you know, as we used to say on checks, words and figures do not agree. They say that's what they're doing. But in practice, it's just one series of short-term measures and expediency after another. I think you're quite right to say there's no vision. But I have a nasty suspicion that that is an endemic part of the problem. And I don't think it's easily solved, if at all. Can I can I just move it on? I feel we're going to get into a kind of slough of despond here with Neil <laughs> airing his general dissatisfaction with the way things are run. But I just wanted to come back to a couple of things. I mean, obviously, one one of the consequences of the war and the sanctions has been to raise questions about security, energy security, to some extent, food security. You've talked about the need to drive growth and create the conditions. I mean, to what extent do those areas fit into that sort of government's growth agenda, if you like? Are there ways in which you can take these knocks and say we can make a positive out of them? Well, yes. Despite the problems at the moment, I think there are lots of reasons to be very positive about the global outlook. Despite the war, and indeed despite the pandemic, and indeed if we went back further, despite the financial crisis, the resilience of Western economies is very evident. In fact, three figures, if I could quote. Three again. (laughs) I have one of them, three. (laughs) 32, 63, and 103. Okay, what are That's not your projection for inflation then. And it's not Fulham's number of goals this season as high as that is, but $32 trillion (laughs) was the size of the world economy in the year 2000. Right. $63 trillion was the size of the world economy the day Lehman Brothers went bust. And the IMF's projection for growth of the world economy this year was $103 trillion, admittedly before the war, but it might be slightly lower. Now, some of that is inflation, but the vast bulk of it is real economic growth. So despite those once-in-the-lifetime shocks we've seen in terms of the global financial crisis and the pandemic, we've seen resilience. This war is horrific. It's not justified in any way, shape, or form. People will die, as we all know, and that's the key focus. But nonetheless, the underlying resilience of the world economy and Western economies, I think, will be proven as we emerge. And if we look longer term, what's interesting, coming back to the question, is about recognizing that the bulk of future growth is likely to be in the Indo-Pacific, from India in the West to America in the East. There's a digital data revolution. What Britain is trying to do last year through the integrated review, which it Mitley was military, but one could say in economic terms, we're trying to do this by joining the Asia-Pacific trade bloc, is position ourselves within that Indo-Pacific region. And at the same time, naturally, we're trying to, like other countries, make sure we're on the front foot for the new industrial revolution. Self-sufficiency in food, you can't really achieve that. You can try and encourage that. Self-sufficiency in energy, again, likewise, you can do things to help, whether it's fracking, whether it's actually the green agenda. But the most interesting thing out of this war is the global decoupling that might be evident in geopolitical terms and whether we see that in financial terms, whether that impacts and clouds your ability on energy and food self-sufficiency remains to be seen. But let's put it this way. Whichever route you think we'll take, in the near term, there's going to be a higher cost on food and energy, which clearly impacts in a negative way growth potential. Slightly um, 
after painting this picture of the broad sunlit uplands, you've sort of slightly said there's going to be a fairly nasty bump on the road. But we're running out of time now, and I just wondered whether you had any thoughts about how we can protect ourselves or at least minimise the damage at a time of high inflation. Is there anything that uh, you would suggest that... uh, people ought to focus on or buy or avoid? Well, in terms of investments, um, I think people should be fully invested. I think they need to be fully diversified. And I think they need to be very long-term in their thinking. There are a whole plethora of assets one can buy. I'm not in favour of, say, saying, for instance, saying buy gold. Gold tends to do well when there are mean returns elsewhere, when there are negative real interest rates. And indeed, the government borrowed a 50-year index linked at negative yield about three and a quarter percent last autumn. So mm. some people might look to crypto, but again, that's rather speculative. Fixed income assets naturally will be impacted by the fact that we have had cheap money for some time. Unconventional monetary policies have led to asset price inflation. We've seen quantitative easing result in longer-term guilt yields being suppressed because the biggest buyer is a non-commercial buyer, namely the central bank. So there's no doubt that fixed income assets will suffer in terms of yields rising, both as short-term rates have to rise and as quantitative easing is replaced by quantitative tightening. The shape of the curve is going to vary from country to country. So in that respect, despite the hit to equities recently, one would argue that a diversified portfolio, including equities, still becomes attractive. Quite right. I would agree with that. Obviously, back in the 70s, people did things. They bought agricultural land, art, and all that sort of thing. But uh, I think your sort of advice sounds rather more sensible sounds rather more to practical. the uh, average uh, You can't all rush out and buy <laughs> yeah. farms. Yeah. Well, actually, one of the issues people do talk about <laughs> is housing. And the real challenge is this, that even though housing in the UK is taxed very highly by global standards, we're coming to an environment where it's becoming the case of you tax more the things that are not mobile. International companies are mobile, high-skilled labour is mobile. Mm. Housing becomes a sort of asset that people will think uh, from a policy perspective, political perspective, might be where you start to add your taxes. So some people naturally in this environment will think housing is attractive, but short-term rates are likely to go higher. And I think we haven't talked enough about monetary policy here, but before the pandemic and before this war, one of the big issues in policy circles is where are neutral interest rates? Where's our star, as people would say? Uh. Should it be close to zero? The market started to think maybe going up to around 2%. But we really need to have interest rates back to a combination of where inflation plus growth is. That's near a 4%. That takes time to get to. Economies can't adjust easily to that. But in that environment, you need to be wary of some of the assets that looked attractive in the 70s. Making direct comparisons between then and now is not always I, the best thing to do. Very sound piece of advice, Joe. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm not going to rush out and buy myself another house. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. Join us again next week. Thank you.